Welcome everyone to Sources, Kane Academy's podcast on history and culture. I'm Andrew Zorneman, your host. In this episode, I have the honor to interview one of America's most renowned historians, Wilford M. McClay. Dr. McClay is the G.T. and Libby Blankenship Chair in the History of Liberty at the University of Oklahoma. He's the author of numerous books. His latest is the much-acclaimed Land of Hope, an invitation to the great American story. He and I met recently by phone to discuss history, America, and the art of teaching. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, recorded from the Kane Academy headquarters in Falls Church, Virginia. Wilfred McClay from University of Oklahoma, welcome to our podcast here at Kane Academy. Thank you. It's really a pleasure to be with you, and I, I, I really admire the work you're doing, and, and I hope, uh, hope that I could be helpful to you and to your constituency out there. Well, I'm sure you will. We're also grateful here on the team that you would spend some time with me uh, recording this podcast. We're, we're here in the, uh, just in the second week of December, and I know that people are moving into the Christmas season, and you're wrapping up your semester there at the university. So I'm, I'm particularly grateful that you would carve out a bit of time with us. And uh, we're really excited about the prospect of learning from you. We want to seek your wisdom, uh, your insights on how to think historically and how to teach history, which we find terribly interesting and really uh, uh, such an important field of uh, teaching and study. Before I get to those specific uh, kinds of questions, I would like to check in on your wonderful history text, Land of Hope, An Invitation to the Great American Story, and the fantastic teacher's guide that goes along with it. I want to know how they're doing. I know a number of schools are utilizing them already. Can you give uh, everybody in the podcast world a little feel for how teachers and students have received the books? Yes, yes. Well, I mean, I've been very gratified by how positive the perception has been. Um, you know, I, I went into this, I, I, you know, with, with very low expectations. Uh, you know, I've published a number of books. None of them have been offered in airports <laughs> around the country or, or uh, you know. Uh, your your outside, face has not uh, appeared on a billboard somewhere. <laughs> yeah, it's never appeared on a billboard. It still has, but uh, I'm not wanting it to, actually. But, uh, you know, I've, it's never been... Uh, um, I'm sort of used to the idea that you write something and, and a few people read it and then it sinks, uh, sinks away. Um, this has been a different kind of experience and, uh, I, and, I, and I really hope um, that the book can have some staying power and can be useful because someday somebody will do it better and, and supersede it and that's the nature of the piece. Uh, but, um, so I've been, I've been very happy with the response of people and um, and, and what criticism I've had has almost always been fair-minded. There have been a couple of sort of hatchet job reviews, but, but you know, not, not in professional or, or important publications. So um, uh, it, it's, you know, I sort of expected a lot more of that kind of treatment than I got. Yeah. Um, it, it is, the teach, you mentioned the teacher's guide, and I'm so happy you, you mentioned it favorably. That was something that we had not um, thought through. And um, it, I could it, I could give you a little bit of background on how I came to write the book because I really was sort of talked into it um, uh, by people who were concerned about the way that uh, um, historical 
it, teaching and learning was taking place to the extent that it's taking place at all in American schools. And I think the precipitating event was when the College Board, which, as you know, is the organization that that um, handles all of the advanced placement testing, certifies advanced placement, um, and has a monopoly over advanced placement, um, uh, changed their guidelines for the U.S. history test in ways that were fairly alarming. They, you know, they left out a serious consideration of the background of the Constitution and the, and the, the drafting of the Constitution itself as a, as a topic that teachers in the AP course ought to cover. And they have a lot of power over the way even AP courses uh, are taught, not just over the exam. You know, they they uh, they insist on seeing teachers' syllabi and all that kind of thing. So they they're very powerful in this, and a number of us were alarmed. We wrote to the college board. We did an open letter, uh, which is still up at the National Association of Scholars website. So and, this was you and, and fellow they, historians. Yes, wrote yes. This letter, yeah. And. Uh, um, and they didn't ever respond to us, but they did roll back most of their changes, which was uh, a momentary relief, but, but a number of smarter people than me realized this was only momentary and that what one of the things that was really needed uh, was a new textbook because mm. all of the, you know, there are three major textbook publishers and all three of them had already adapted their texts to the new standards. So, um, and they weren't about to pulp them all and go back to the old standard. So, yeah. um, so I started hearing this drumbeat from people. That, well, you know, we need another textbook. Why did you write it? And um, and my response was always, uh, well, I know we need a new textbook, but um, I hope you find somebody to write it because I'm not going to. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I just didn't. You know, it, it's there's all kinds of headaches that come with that kind of. Um, writing and uh, that I didn't particularly want to take on but you know what happened to me and this really I think feeds into some of what you've written about so beautifully in your book is I, for much of my career I've been complaining in, in print and elsewhere about the fragmentation of history about the way in which we've lost the sense of the larger narrative uh, of, that, that history relates, and uh, which is part of who and what we are. It's to lose something of who and what we are, to lose that narrative, that story. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, it started to dawn on me during this whole episode that I've just described that, you know, I, it was really time for me to put up or shut up. You know, that I, I've been saying, oh, we really need a different kind of history. And, and and I expected somebody else to do it. <laughs> and uh, it, it finally dawned on me, you know, um, if, if not me, who, to uh, paraphrase Rabbi Hillel. Um, well, know, well, and, well and what is it? I, what, what is it that we've lost because of poor uh, American history being taught in the schools and poor or deficient testing that, you know, reduces things to, to questions that are, uh, almost by design, excluding things like you know the writing of the Constitution and the debates around that. What, so what? What? Ex so it's one thing to identify events that have been left 
uh, from consideration. But when you say we lose something of who we are, that that goes to something more spiritual, more moral, more a matter of our identification. So what what have we lost? Well, I think we 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 haven't lost it completely, but we've lost the supporting intellectual infrastructure for an understanding of the extent to which we are, we as Americans are an aspirational people. That is that if you, to, to try to describe, you know, the, the, you know, the American um, national character, uh, you know, it's a very old fashioned way of talking, I know, but uh, um, to describe what, what is distinctive about Americans, if anything. And I think one of the things you could not uh, come up with a, a persuasive and compelling uh, account of Americanness if you didn't include this aspirational character that, that we are we Americans believe that no one should be condemned to live out their lives within the conditions of their birth that um, I mean that just to put it that way in a very simple way of putting it you won't find anybody to disagree with that. Um, what 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 we don't realize is this is not this has not been the norm in in the human past, and it's not the norm in in, in much of the world today. And uh, it's really a, a gift that um, America uh, brought into the world. Uh, do, and uh, do you mean it's not uh, a norm no. in, in that um, it's uh, uniquely American that we built? our society, our culture, our history around that aspiration? Because you're not saying that the aspiration is somehow exclusive to Americans. I, I, oh, right? no, no, you're, no. You're saying, yeah, no, yeah, I see what you're asking. Yes, it, it is uh, it's something that we have a, a kind of, uh, uh, shall we say, a preferential option for, for hopefulness. For that, and uh, that's part of what I mean in the title, "Land of Hope," that, yeah. that we are we are ever, um, uh, you know, seeking something better, and, and have a restlessness about us that is is not always, uh, you know, uh, doesn't always manifest itself in in the best ways. Um, so, you know, they, they, there's a variety there, but but it is it is a spiritual quality. It's a, a sense of um, of of the world as full of possibility, um, as is charged with possibility, and um, I, I think if you didn't include that in your account of, of what it is to be an American, you would be missing a great deal. Um, if you'd simply talked about you know sort of economic figures or. Um, concentrated on on sort of dry uh, legal or political or other matters, and and failed to include this this what I call aspirational quality. You you will you will have missed America. Well, one, um, of, one of the things I love about this book is that you uh, successfully weave that um, sp- that spiritual, moral, uh, aspirational quality that is so important to the narrative. To concrete historical events, and then uh, uh, expose for us the drama that's right on the center of the stage uh, in American history. Let me let me just give one example. I, I wanted to read this because I wanted to give our, our listeners just w- at least one example of how lyrical your prose is. But I also want to give them an example of how you've captured 
the drama of the American experience, where matters of the heart, matters of aspiration, matters of vision are, are really central. And it may, on the surface, may sound um, seem mundane this example, but I think it's a really good one. This is at the end of chapter thirteen, which for our listeners is a chapter uh, that covers roughly the end of the nineteenth uh, century and the the you know we're right on on the, uh-huh. uh, the cusp of the twentieth and. Uh, uh, the, thematically, um, Professor McClay, you're talking about the rise of America as a world power. And uh, towards the end, you, you have these really interesting lines. There was always a divided heart in the American approach to imperial rule, which helps explain why most of the lands acquired in the Spanish-American War were soon devolved toward independent status. The great debate over the annexation of the Philippines went to a profound tension in the American experience, one that would only increase as the American role in the world became greater and greater. I think that's just a really a lovely bit of writing, but I think also you kind of cut to uh, it's like a, a major vein of, of gold historically that runs right through the American experience, that kind of uh, tension between you know, our, our mounting greatness, what we do with it, and our own self-reflection about it. Could, does that sound right? Is that a fair representation? Well, it's it's a, it's it's a, it's it's a way I would uh, describe myself if I were a more vain person. <laughs> you know, no, it's, it's 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 exactly what I hope that I, I was achieving, and uh, um, and you know, there's something to add here that I think is sort of an interesting point that kind of occurred to me as I was working on the book and. And coming to all these places where um, the real expectation is that if you're going to preach and you're going to to moralize, you're going to to um, sort of um, say what is worthy of admiration and what's worthy of condemnation. Mm. That's and that's being a honest, you know, historians honest about our national flaws. And and look, I, I of course believe in that in being honest, but I think. Leaving out our achievements is a form of dishonesty. Too. Yes, yes. <laughs> and, and leaving out a sense that some of the errors we've made, some of the the, the crimes we've committed, uh, are things that that go deep to uh, to deeper issues than just the, the, the question of America. They are questions of human nature. They're questions of the human experience. See, slavery itself. Uh, I think it is, is much better understood um, the American experience with slavery if it's seen in proper context as something that has been more the rule than the exception in human history. And that's my students are, you know, my classes are shocked when I say this. They, they have grown up thinking that the, the United States was the only nation in the world that practiced slavery uh, in, in, the, in the modern world. And, and, uh, and they may have some vague inkling that the Romans and Greeks had slavery, but uh, not not um, not anything of the same order order of magnitude. And uh, um, you know, to to have uh, an ability to kind of uh, reflect on these things and, and without being moralistic, and and by moralistic I mean not to to prescind from all moral judgment. That that it would be wrong, but. Um, to certainly to prescind from doing it prematurely and to see the role of the study of history as you know, which which um, which people and events 
do we kind of give the good housekeeping seal of approval to, and which ones do we do we you know pull down the statues of and uh, and regard as as uh, shameful and unworthy of our of our admiration? Um, you know, uh, it, it, it's it helps a lot, I think, if you, if you come to this with a a sensibility that is at least informed and tempered by, um, I, I have to say it, the, a Christian sense, or a, a, a strong sense, it may not be specifically Christian, of, of, of human fallibility and of um, the fact that, uh, as, as the Bible says, the measure you give is the measure you will receive. And therefore, to be a bit more charitable towards the past, instead of leaping out uh, and, and condemning Thomas Jefferson, as a hypocrite, uh, or somebody who endorsed or or, or allowed uh, the existence of institutions that we now regard as abhorrent, try to understand what what was going on with them. Try to understand what things he was, what tensions he was wrestling with. Um, try uh, to see um, the, the, the the moral the moral conundrums that thoughtful individuals like him, who were uh, you know, on the, on the cusp of a great, great change in, uh, in human sense, moral sensibility, um, how they, they they coped with that that moment in time, and uh, and and I think in, in very general ways we can learn something from that ourselves uh, about how to cope with uh, you know our own times because you know examined closely we we. We uh, we don't we don't fare necessarily as well as we think we do. Uh, uh, so um, uh, a kind of moral modesty maybe is is uh, is in order there. But but I I, uh, I think this this attitude towards the past, which we have seen illustrated, I think, with just kind of dismaying clarity in the the, the run of statues being pulled down. From Columbus to, for God's sake, Frederick Douglass and Mohandas Gandhi, <laughs> you know, um, uh, to, to name just a few, uh, and the statues have been pulled down. It really is this judgmental um, um, sort of uh, we're going we're going around we're making a list and checking it twice, and if you don't make the cut, you know, erasure is your fate. Um, and it ignores the, the possibility that, well, let's take a figure like Lincoln, who is someone that, that most Americans greatly admire, and I think with good reason. Uh, but, but if you want to be, uh, you know, say Lincoln must meet our 20, 20th, 21st century standards perfectly, or else he, we, he's not worthy of our admiration. Well, you know, he didn't, he didn't appear to accept the notion of racial equality. He was not an abolitionist. He was a gradualist. Uh, he, you know, there's a lot of things um, to find fault with if you, if you want to. But um, uh, what he was able to accomplish Given the, the limitations of his time, given the fact that as a politician he was dealing with um, the, the famous saying, "Politics is the art of the possible," mm-hmm. he was he, he was was moving the ball down the field in uh, great and important ways. Uh, he was uh, himself 
strongly opposed to slavery, uh, but um, but he also was a believer that the abolition of slavery wouldn't mean anything if it wasn't done in the right way, and if it wasn't done in a way that preserved the Constitution, which he saw as being of absolutely central importance to the uh, survival and, and flourishing of American civilization. So, and, so and it seems how, to do me you, that, how do you weigh all that? Yeah. You, you, and, you have to, it, it, I'm sorry, I'll let you get a word in. No, no that's okay. <laughs> I, I was going to say, and it seems to me that um, there's a, a very good uh, sense that we can draw uh, when we read your book that uh, figures like Lincoln are, are not static either. I mean, Lincoln himself yes. changed as a, as a, Yes. As an executive, as a as a strategist, and as a human thinking about other humans, I th- I think it's one of the, the beautiful things about his story, and I think you capture it very nicely. So that if the war, if the Civil War was not engaged initially as a war to end slavery, it it, it became one, and his uh-huh. his sensibility about his um, his fellow uh, Americans who were black really changed, and uh, and and for the better, and. Uh, I love I love what he does in the Gettysburg Address, where he, he where the self evident truth uh, in Jefferson's hands becomes a proposition. So you know something axiomatic becomes something that has to be proven, and not in the sense it was ever untrue, but that in sense you know historically we've got to renew our sense of freedom. We need a rebirth of freedom. We need to establish a deeper sense about it, and, and we need to free the slaves. We we can't have. Free American freedom and American slavery anymore. They just uh, it can't it can't be that way. Yes, yes, and 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 something else. I mean, I think in the uh, just again speaking strictly in the American political vein, um, the the denigration of the of the founders. I think is, mm-hmm. is very uh, very misguided. I don't I don't think they should be above criticism and uh, um, or at least a critical engagement with what they did. But um, the, the the notion that that, uh, that the 1619 project, among among other things, there's nothing very original in 1619 project. Uh, some things that are made up. But the the, um, the 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 notion that the Constitution was, uh, you know, objectively pro-slavery is is something that's been kicking around for for quite a while, and uh, that in essence is what. Um, I mean, it's part of the assertion that's being made with the 1619 project, and you know, there's there's a, there's a really wonderful book by an extremely um, left wing historian <laughs> uh, from Princeton named Sean Willens, um that I think demonstrates about as conclusively as anybody ever will that this was not the case that it was it, that Madison in particular, and others who were involved in the framing of the Constitution went out of their way to avoid using the word slavery and that that they did this conscious of the fact that they did not want to give any any credibility to the notion that there was, to quote Madison, such a thing as property in man. No property in man. That that's the phrase that comes out of his uh, his, his uh, writings on this subject, and and that I think is a is a the proper way to see it. Although it's also, as I say in the book, uh, pretty clear that the institution was economically 
well enough established that you could not have held together the union in the early going effectively, effectively enough to fight a revolutionary war, for example, uh, without uh, conceding to the South its peculiar institution, which um, at the time of the Constitution Convention, a lot of people thought it would fade away. Um, it didn't. You know, uh, the cotton gin kind of saw to that and the, and the explosion of the cotton economy. But um, uh, I think all of these things have to be, all these contingencies have to be taken into account. And, and uh, something that, that um, I, I think is very important uh, as part of the development of a historical sense is to develop a sense of the, 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 the moral sensibilities grow and develop. They're not static. That doesn't, which does not mean, and I think some people fear when you say that, they think, oh, well, you're, you're a relativist. You're, you're taking a relativist. Because no, no, I'm not saying that um, believing in the rightness of slavery is, is just as valid a point of view as, as believing in the, in the wrongness of it. But I think that the recognition of the humanity, of the universal a dignity of the human person um, is something that um, that that has has gradually come to us. It's, of course, it comes. It, it came in a big way with the advent of, of Christianity and the, and the whole Judeo-Christian tradition. And I, this is certainly something that comes across in the book. As I, I hope I'm not too heavy-handed about it, but I do try to say that uh, we, we we owe an enormous debt in the character of our moral sensibilities to our religious heritage. But, um, but I think it's important to, to, to see the people of the past as acting in their past and not in our present. Mm. Uh, that, that, and it, it's an exercise of the imagination that I think... Um, uh, it, it, I find it, it, you really have to work at it. It's a muscle yeah. that you have to develop, that yeah, muscle yeah. Of, of the historical imagination. Uh, uh, and, and, you know, it's amazing that, that how little of that. I think we've really got to work on that. How little of that I see in even my very bright students. This is something that they they don't learn. They don't They, they don't learn about how to kind of put yourself in the shoes of a person in a very different time and place. Yeah. I, mean, I remember having a conversation, this is a sort of absurd example, but uh, an example of a student who said, well, I can't watch old movies because, you know, I'll see a scene where somebody's in a chase and I think, well, why don't they just call their partner on the cell on their cell phone? <laughs> and they can't imagine um, a world in which the sort of the software of existence was different from what they're used to, so that they they they, they see something from the seventies or eighties and they laugh at the clunky telephones and things like that. But uh, you're, you're, uh, I even had a student. Your, your fellow. I, I even had a student tell yeah. me that she, she couldn't watch movies that were not in color. Oh goodness! <laughs> <laughs> your your fellow historians. Um, uh, Bernard Balin and um, Gordon Wood have some nice uh, pithy phrases for what you're talking about. Bernard Balin talks about uh, so beautifully about uh, reading events in their context 
it sounds so obvious, right? But he, he spends in his last book, uh, the um, Sometimes in Art. I think it was his last book. It was a beautiful collection of essays. And he talked yes, about I think that was his last book. Yeah, and it was such a great essay on uh, the the discipline of reading things in context. Uh, Gordon Wood calls it the pastness of the past. Like, yeah, and uh, it's not just the past. It's there's something about it being in the past. It's different from where we are today, and 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 by dint of its pastness, it, it warrants our attention and our our care, our, our careful observation. Hey, let me let me turn to a couple of nuts and bolts things about your your two books. I, I want to talk about. Um, okay, I can't, I can't help but notice the beautiful cover on uh, both of them actually, but I want to talk a little bit about the cover of uh, the the narrative. And uh, there's a, um, a beautiful painting of um, the Hudson Water, Hudson River waterfront in New York City. And the painting was uh, produced somewhere between, I think, 1913 and 1921. And so uh, I, it's just a lovely painting, but uh, and it's full of color and light. It's very fetching. I just wanted to know um, if you had a hand in, in that selection of that painting, uh, or whether or not you did, uh, what do you think about that painting as capturing the the spirit of, of your book, The Land of Hope? Well, I'm 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 so glad you asked about that. I did have a hand in that. I, I, I it was my pick, but and I had a notion. They 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 did. I mean, design, first of all, I want to say the design is beautiful. It really is the cover design. I mean, the jacket design, the design and, of the interior. It's all and, done by. Uh, a man named Carl Scarborough, who I think I ought to uh, I ought to write him into my will or something. He, <laughs> he, 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 his success with this is a big part of the book's success. I want to acknowledge that publicly. But um, a shout out to yeah, Encounter have, Books. Yeah, uh, that's a great yes, uh, institution. Yes, and, and, Encounter and, Books, and, really, really and, important and, group. It is, and, and you know, they're a trade publisher, and, and, and they've never published an educational book before. And a lot of people told me, "Boy, you're making a mistake using encounter books." And I said, "Well, I'm going to go with them because they let me write the book the way I want to, yeah. and 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 the standard textbooks they have to be vetted by you know, tons and tons of committees to make sure that." every interest group or stakeholder, as they say, uh, is represented. And that's the reason they're so abysmal uh, to read, because they, were, they really were written, in effect, by committee. Um, but I, I had an idea of what I wanted the cover to be. Um, and, uh, and they went ahead and did a design, had Carl uh, Scarborough do a design, beautiful design, using one of Grant Wood's um, uh, sort of farm uh, scenes, you know, the, the perfectly uh, plowed fields and and all of that, and I mean, the design was just exquisite. But I said, no, I, we can't do that. Yeah. We can't do that because it it's we will be so we're going to be so open to criticism anyway that we're uh, by trying to, to present a more positive view of American history, we're. Nostalgic for a past that never was, you know, uh, yeah. all this kind of language, and uh, and I think if if I, you know, if we have a cover sort of shouting out, this is a book about the sort of idyllic um, America that once was, um, then it, it really will hurt the cause. I yeah. think it's much better to have something dynamic um, and something that has that hope, because. The, the, the title was the first thing I wrote before I wrote another word. I, 
and the title just kind of came to me. This is what it should be Land of Hope. That that's sort of the defining element that that so many features of American life have in common. Let, um, let me just interrupt and, ju- just for a second, yeah. and let me situate the audience. So I'm looking at the cover mm-hmm. right now, and um, it is uh, so the Hudson River is for anybody who doesn't know this is on the west side of Manhattan, and, right? And so. The, we're looking, um, I, I'm not sure exactly how far down Manhattan we are, but we're looking at a, an early 20th century uh, skyline in Manhattan. There's beautiful um, pre-storm, uh, pre, or, you know, big summertime clouds off in the distance behind the skyline. Yeah, cumulus. And, and, yeah. and be- below at the bottom of the painting, you see part of the river and there are tugboats, there are steamboats, a lot of activity. Steam is belching into the sky. And the and the, the skyline is bathed by light. Well, that has to be light from the western sun. So that means we're the we're getting at the end of the day. And yet, uh-huh, and, uh-huh. but beautifully, right? It's the western sun. So um, I'm eating this up. This is just a great picture, and it's got the well, he, the hues of uh, the impressionist movement. One one uh, is thinking, you know, Monet and Monet and and um, and chaps like that. And and uh, so it's it's just a really it's um, it's a vibrant picture. In other words, it captures the energy of the city. Uh, it captures that beautiful western light. Uh, there's still a lot of life in it, even though it's a it's an architectural image uh, for the most part. So anyway, back to you as to what you were trying to convey exactly uh, with that picture. Well, what I wanted was, you know, something like, I, I, I did, you know, we looked at other sort of uh, mountains and uh, uh, other cities, you know, but I, I really all along had the notion that there was something I had seen before uh, dealing with the New York Harbor or the waterfront that, and, and here's the feeling I wanted to have was something like when when you first walk into a cathedral and mm. you know you come out of the narthex into the into the main sanctuary and you have this sudden sense of thrusting upward space, um, you know this just it's uncanny feeling that actually you almost feel a lift in yourself um, that comes from uh, entering into this space. Um, I wanted to have something with, that had some of that feel to it. Um, and uh, I'm not sure whether this does to me, I'm not sure whether it does to everybody because I've mentioned this account to other people and they've looked at me sort of blankly. But but, but I, think, I think the sky, the clouds, the... There's a, there's a vaulting upward energy in yes, yes. in the in this that um, that I liked very much. But I also I loved the colors. I loved it. all the things you said. The, the kind of sun dappled, um, you know, and, and, and yes, you can see shadows on some of the buildings that, that give you a sense of where the sun is. And, yes, um, it really you um, you really got it. In the in the the eye is drawn upwards uh, to the highest skyscrapers and to the uh, the beautiful uh, mauve tinted. Um, yes. Clouds. So yeah, you, you're 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 totally right. I, I think everything you said is exactly uh, captured so so beautifully there. Uh, let me let me. Turn I have to, to give credit. Yeah. I have to give credit to the the, the um, tiny staff at at Encounter Books, where, where everybody does uh, you know seven different things. Um, you know, they, 
they they ended up helping helping me because you know and going through reams and reams of, of archival files and that sort of thing uh, you know looking for something like what I was describing and uh, and uh, I you know I to this day I can't remember whether um, what one of the one of the people the copy editor uh, came across this first and it was just one of you know, when we were working on this very intensively, she would send me, you know, 40, 50 images a day. And and, uh, and I think that's how this happened. This is one of them. And I said, whoa, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I had never heard, uh, you know, the painter is a guy named um, Colin Campbell Cooper. Um, and I can never, I always get those names out of, out of order. I think I've got it now, but he... He, uh, he definitely was uh, in the American Impressionist movement, uh, but very little known. Um, uh, the, Roger Kimball, who's the publisher of Encounter Books, is also the editor of the New Criterion, which right. was founded primarily as an art magazine, and that's one of his highlights. He, he said he'd never heard of it before. But mm. um, it's so we're using uh, images from. Colin Campbell Cooper um, for all of the ancillary materials, which I, I, I will mention just quickly that we have we have a student teacher's guide, which you had to thank you, Andrew, have mentioned. We also have forthcoming in a little while, maybe about two months, a student uh, workbook uh, that will be also linked to the teacher's guide and to the text. And then um, uh, maybe about April, uh, something I'm still working on is a uh, young reader's edition. So that oh, will be nice. for um, maybe uh, fifth grade, you know, that's kind of where I'm thinking, I'm pitching it as I'm working on it. Well, that's such um, a great idea so, because, you know, the typical, yeah. you know, the American students typically get two to three cuts at American history. Maybe they'll even start it as little ones, as six or seven year old. And then in, you know, fifth and sixth grade, they get sort of their first serious history course. And then later on in high school, ninth, 10th, 11th grade, they'll get another course. So that's great. You're, you're um, going to target that. Group. Yes. And, 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 you know, this was not part of a master plan. It was uh, everything that's happened. We've, and we've been responding to suggestions from people. So I, I say this partly to encourage the listeners to, um, to to be to, to make suggestions and and make suggestions to us if you, if you decide to uh, your teachers and you decide to make use of the book or just readers, I get a lot of uh, helpful hints from readers, some of which I've incorporated, <laughs> and uh, um, people do listen to you when you're not dealing with Pearson or McGraw Hill or yeah. some uh, Colossus. Uh, so, but, but for every one of these books, we have a Colin Campbell Cooper painting, a different one, on the cover. So it, we we are yeah. giving a big boost to his uh, his historical legacy. I'm sold, uh, and I, I'm telling everybody in the audience, it's a really beautiful cover. Right. If you haven't seen Land of Hope, it's it's such a it's such a handsome cover. It really catches the eye. Well, I want to talk a little bit about that teacher's guide, and because I I want all the teachers in the audience to hear a little bit more about it. And let me ask as a teacher, a history teacher, uh, I'm gonna ask you, the, the master teacher, um, you and your team clearly, uh, what's evident in your guide, you and your team clearly focused careful attention on what kind of questions teachers should ask regarding American history. 
That seems a very classical concern. It's evocative of Socratic dialogues that are driven by questions. It reminds us of Aristotle's uh, observation that all learning begins with wonder. So, you know, a really good teacher is going to ask well-crafted questions to, to trigger wonder, discovery, acquisition of knowledge, understanding. What should we as history teachers consider when crafting our questions? In other words, Professor McClay, what makes for a good question in the study of American history or history in general? Oh, gosh, there's, there are a lot of different ways, and, and, and a lot depends on what um, the teacher himself or herself is is, uh, is most comfortable doing or most uh, adroit at doing, because we all have our different strengths. I think um, that uh, that counterfactual questions can be, I mean, once you have a mastery of the detail, counterfactual questions can be, uh, I I think, for example, you know, one of the questions that um, I don't really dwell on that much in the materials, but it's something that when I teach, I do a lot of sort of what, why, why did Lincoln, why why did did Lincoln choose to fight a civil war? Because if we take it as sort of an obvious thing, that, well, of course, there was a civil war. Of course, we had to fight. Well, why? Why? Why not just let the South go? Wouldn't it have been better in all sorts of ways? And uh, again, force them to think through, not necessarily to justify what Lincoln did. You know, that that's the moralistic uh, streak that I, I want to sort of militate against. But just try to, to enter into, imaginatively into his world and, and into the thinking that, that motivated him to, to, to reach that conclusion and then then stick to it through all the difficulties that would ensue over the next four years. Um, uh, so th- there's, there's that. I, I think things that, that open students up to, uh, if there's one thing I, I really, myself, always try to do is it is to, to try to get them to understand that yes, while there are major structural forces in history, history is always full of contingencies, mm. full of things that that didn't have to be the way that they were, uh. um, that might have turned out otherwise, um, and uh, uh, and the, the reasons why it, it, things turned out as they did, rather than in some other way. Um, I think that, that that's. You know that that's that's a key element of what makes history different is that it's a, it's it has the elements of narrative of a story, but it's a story that actually happened. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and uh, and and you want to find meaning in it. It's very we're always looking for meaning in yeah. the, the study of the past. That's not um, that's not a, uh, a sort of luxury. Yeah. It's a necessity. I, that so, is such a great yeah. point. I I remember how. Um, Really floored I was uh, when I read uh, the uh, the great uh, historian Eugene Davidson. He had a he had a oh, wonderful yeah. book on the rise of Hitler and the Nazi movement, and uh, he had a whole chapter devoted to World War One, which of course is hugely important for understanding Hitler and, and the Nazi movement. But I never I will never forget uh, his account. Where he says. That the, uh, the the Kaiser and the, the whole court of the Kaiser had rattled its its saber so loudly, it seemed like there was there was no pulling back from war. And then uh, the Vatican sent emissaries to Berlin, 
and um, figured out a way for him to back down and, and to save face at the same time. And they took the proposal to London, and um, the Brits were not so keen on it. And they were a little, they're kind of a little uh, more anxious to rumble with the Germans than sometimes we're, we're led to believe. So yeah. I sort of, and I, I bring that up because it speaks to your point that um, things happen the way they happen. They didn't happen the way you know. They, it wasn't inevitable. It's like it could have contingencies. Yeah, very little. Involved. Yeah. Yeah, very little is inevitable. Yeah. yeah. Let, let me ask I, you a you couple know, of what's that? Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to ask you a couple more nuts and bolts questions. I, I'm going to end the uh, the interview with. Uh, a, a, a kind of a big sweeping question, <laughs> but let me ask you a couple of nuts and bolts questions. When you teach in the classroom, uh, do you use maps, uh, slides of portraiture and battlefields? Uh, do you use other images, or do you just you know straight up lecture from your lectern? You know, I don't as much as I should. I think and it's something that I, but you know, I'm, I'm like. Uh, I like to think I'm like, you know, Michelangelo had uh, did some of his greatest work when he was in his 80s or 70s and 80s and, and uh, very an old man. And uh, we well, still got said, 30 more years, right? <laughs> yes, right. right. <laughs> it said that he, he had a saying, uh, this is disputed like all good things, but uh, that uh, ancora imparo, which is Italian for I am still learning. Yes. You know, this is the 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 the, 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 the Sistine Chapel, you name it under his belt, and yet he, I'm still learning. Yes. And yes. Uh, so so I'm still learning, uh, and uh, uh, still learning about teaching, and uh, part of that reflects the fact that we we have a very different generation. Things started to change about seven years or so ago, and I, I, I'm not sure whether it correlates with the advent of social media being just kind of swamping everything, but but there, it takes different kinds of um, exertions to get students to see things. And uh, um, I'll give you an example uh, of something I wouldn't have done um, it, 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 that I, I, I want to try to do more of. Um, uh, I'm very one of the things I'm very interested in that doesn't get it's, it's due in, in history classes is music, um, and I devised a course um, at at my university based on a syllabus that W. H. Auden uh, put together in 1941, and it was a kind of um, really a, a sort of way over the top, a great books course. I mean, just ridiculously demanding. Um, and when I saw this, it had been uncovered in the archives at the University of Michigan. I thought, I've got to do this someday. If, I have, if I'm in the right place and the students are good enough you know, to do it. But they are here, you know, at, at, at OU. We have wonderful students. So one of the things Auden, you know, Auden was, among other things, a, a librettist. Uh, he worked with uh, Stravinsky and other uh, other composers, and uh, um, so he had a real feel for opera. And there were nine operas in this short, <laughs> the one semester course. Nine operas, holy along cow! With, a long list of, of books from Homer to Dostoevsky, um, and um, uh, it, it, uh, I insisted we needed to have I took time team taught it with two other guys and uh, I insisted we needed to have um, some opera in it so they 
they said, okay, you know, you teach it. <laughs> so, all right, I, I did. Well, one of the things I wanted to convey to them is how different lyrics are from poems, from the words in poems. Mm-hmm. And that, um, so that, that, that some of the, you know, these arias, if you, um, if you just look at the words, you think, well, this is kind of silly. Uh, and, and then you hear them sung, uh, it, it's, a, uh, it's a different matter. And, and I knew that if I did that, that with, um, with operatic pieces, uh, it wouldn't work because it, it's all too unfamiliar to them. So I found, I, I did a version, there's a singer named Eva Cassidy I'm very fond of, and, uh, um, and she does a version of somewhat, the song Somewhere Over the Rainbow, you know, the uh, Halberg, uh, uh, Harold Ireland song, and uh, uh, from The Wizard of Oz. And uh, every, every American knows this song. And uh, she does a version of this song that is, well, have you in tears? It is like a, a cry of existential angst. Huh. <laughs> and uh, so I, what, what I did was I handed out the, um, uh, the lyrics and we read through them, you know, somewhere over, and it's like a nursery rhyme. It, it, it looks silly, you know, that yeah. you hear the words. And then you hear the singer do them. Yes, yes. And, and you, you get a whole different sense of what that text is. And I try to do that in teaching speeches and, you know, all kinds of other texts that, that you, you know, don't, when you read this speech of Churchill, don't imagine it um, just as a piece of prose. Uh, imagine it in, in the context, in the setting, in the House of Commons, in... Um, you know his great speech about rebuilding the parliament um, uh, in 1943. I think it was. I mean, the war is still go raging, but uh, how we should rebuild it exactly as it was. And you know, you just have to picture the whole thing. And uh, um, that's something I've gotten better at, and that I think is you know, to, to, to make the past. Uh, it's a cliche, but to make make some part of the past come alive. That's, um, oh, that's is, so beautiful. It's, I, it, it's it, a real effort. Yeah. And, you know, I'm an intellectual historian. I mean, that's my training. It's, it, it's always a great temptation for me to just kind of disappear into, into clouds of ideas. Um, and, um, and I've had to fight that. And I've, I've gotten better and better at fighting it. But, um, you know, it, it's one thing to... Um, Try to describe, let's say, John Dewey's approach to education, which I'm not a fan of, on my view. But I always try to be fair um, and try to to um, illustrate how the teaching of certain subjects in a, in a really pure Dewey Dewey school would be different from the kind of rote teaching that he was quite properly, I think, uh, attacking in much of his work. Um, that doesn't mean that what he did was perfect <laughs> by yeah, any stretch, yeah. but but um, it 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 is uh, it's so, searching for those concrete examples, not to but let the count disappear into a a mist of foggy abstraction. Mm-hmm. And that's the thing I have learned more than anything else is that that, that this, this generation of students, maybe even this generation of readers, really need. For you to make it make it new by by making it 
vivid and 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 tangible. Well, um, well, you know, one you know, of the things I, I love about your book is that uh, it, it. I mean, the, the prose is really lyrical. It's so lovely. Um, it, it also uh, it's so observational and, and sympathetic at the same time, and it, it makes the case by um, by argument and by the beauty of the the text. It makes a case for the best of American culture. It makes us think and feel what we ought to as Americans. It, it reminded me um, of another book actually published by Encounter Books. I think it's called Culture Counts by Roger Scruton. He has oh, a whole, yeah, yeah, yeah. He has a whole uh, chapter, I believe, on song and the, the higher um, and not so high expressions of uh, human feeling and the importance of feeling what we ought to uh, th- uh, taught to us by our culture. And so it's embedded in the culture, and that means it's embedded in history. I think you do a great job... Uh, sinking us or, or situating us culturally in American history. Let, let me, um, let me, uh, I Thank know you. we're running out Thank of time you. here. Oh, you're most welcome as well. It's really deserved. And, uh, I can't commend this book enough. Uh, let me, I know we're running out of time here. Let me ask one final question. Um, uh, professor McClay, you have a really great title. Uh, you're the professor of the history of liberty at the University of Oklahoma. And I, man, if I were a professor of history, that's exactly the, the title I would like to have. It, it sort of can't get better than that. I'd love to know your thoughts. And this, we're coming back now to one of the um, motifs in the opening of, of the discussion. You, you spoke so nicely about the importance of history to remember ourselves, because if we, we forget ourselves, we lose something about ourselves. So I want to I ask I want to ask finally, as a, as the professor of liberty uh, or the history of liberty, what is the connection to your mind, the important connection between the study of history, uh, historical thinking, and the habit of, of history as a habit of the mind, on the one hand, and freedom, and I mean by that. Uh, not just institutional uh, or physical or material freedom, but rather uh, intellectual, uh, spiritual, and moral freedom? Well, that is a big question. And uh, I think, you know, that, that, that one, of the, one of the biggest obstacles to, to uh, having clarity about that is, is um, the, the, our, the, the misconceptions that we have about the nature of liberty or freedom. That is simply the, you know, absence of constraint, and uh, and uh, you know that this is something where the framers and founders of this country understood things better and more clearly than we do, and this is why why reaching back to the past um, is is such a necessary and salutary thing because they understood that um, the difference between liberty and license which is a, a, a distinction that if you make it to the average uh, you know, young person today, they're going to look at you with that blank expression I've described several times. Um, the, uh, what, what is license? What, what, why not? Why, 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 should, why, why shouldn't you do exactly as you please? And why isn't that freedom? Um, and the notion that freedom is living in accordance with a... Um, set of directives and standards and virtues um, that that you you uh, that, that are not subjective in character 
but then also that you dictate yourself to be a self-ruled person. Um, but that's freedom. Freedom is living in accordance with um, higher standards and values to which you are called to by your nature, but which don't automatically uh, don't all automatically manifest themselves. I mean, virtue is something that has to be learned. It has to be habitual. It has to be cultivated. It has to be guarded. All of these things. And so, um, I think I think there, there is a kind of moral element in um, in teaching about the the way in which uh, you know. And this is the only subject in history, but the way in which civilizations have the greatest civilizations in, in, in that we know of in, in the world have come to rack and ruin through their own indiscipline, through their own decadence, uh, decay. Um, and, uh, and you know, it's an interesting thing. It's been a feature of American history from the beginning, our fear of being like Rome. This is, even in the early national period, you have people worrying about this, worrying about our loss the loss of the kind of virtue that had made the nation strong in its founding and its um, conduct of the Revolutionary War. And uh, um, it, it is, you know, it's, it, to go back to this notion of um, uh, how we lose a part of ourselves when we, we don't remember what we came from. I mean, that's a part of it, to have a past that, that is in some way estimable, that's not a source of shame, uh, but it's a source of, and it's not a source of uncritical um, whooping and celebration, but it, it is something nevertheless that to be, to be proud of. Um, this is just a huge loss among our young today. They're not being given the notion of those things in their past that are estimable, that are, uh, great and noble, um, and we we need to we need to restore that. Without, you know, uh, uh, I mean, there's such a there's such a fear of the word patriotism of the words, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, exceptional or, or whatever, um, and we need to overcome that fear and, and understand that we can have a judicious understanding of our past, that's a judicious view of our past that is. Uh, that is, that's um, not a whitewash. That's not a, a, a falsification of our past. But it, to my mind, and this is the thing that the 1619 types don't reckon with, it, it, it is a falsification of our past if we leave out what's majestic in it, it what's glorious, what uh, really has advanced um the, the, the cause of all humanity, uh, and that is that is a rightful part of the inheritance of our young people. They're they're, they're being deprived of, uh, I think, by an overly censorious and uh, and gloomy history of America. And, and American history is nothing more than a procession of horrors and Confederate flags and you know, that sort of thing. Yes, uh, it, there is more to us than that. Um, uh, and we are, we are, and we are not alone in our sins. Where well, what we are alone in is in some of the our extraordinary virtues. Uh, and I just would like to see more emphasis on those things. And we're getting there. I hope. Yeah. I think we are. And with with uh, 
you know, this book and other things that are being published that are, you know, really very heartening. So I think we can do it. But well, well, Professor McClay, uh, you uh, have pointed out to us in your beautiful narrative, Land of Hope, and in the equally beautiful um, Teacher's Guide to the Land of Hope, that uh, we, we do have a very good story. America's a good place to be, and it's, it's uh-huh. not perfect. No place is, but it's, it's where we are, and it's and the only possibility for improvement. Yeah for uh, justice, for a freer and uh, more equal society is is working where we are. And uh, we've got the resources, we've got the tools, we've got the history. I think you've done a great job capturing that. The books unto themselves are an occasion of hope. So I think uh, I commend them to all the teachers uh, out there listening to our podcast, and I hope it continues to have great success. Wilfred McClay, this has been such a joy and an honor. Uh, on behalf of everyone at Kane Academy, thank you so much for giving us this time, and uh, thank you for your visionary gift to all of us with your beautiful well, book, I, uh, Land of Hope. Yeah, you, you're leaving me speechless. <laughs> but I, uh, let me just say, I've had a chance to read uh, some of the things. I've read your book. Everybody should hear it. If you haven't read this book yet, you must read it. It is so inspirational. And... Uh, um, but uh, the things you're doing with Canine Academy, they, you know, this is this is uh, um, th- th- this is really essential work. That 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 uh, it's not just uh, a matter, you know, which is transforming education, which is really what we're trying to do, is is not going to be just only a matter of uh, providing the right materials, the right texts. That's important. But if you don't have the right teachers. Um, that could be all for naught. You know, the teacher is essential. This is why I mean, I, I uh, I'm absolutely an opponent of, you know, and I was before it was cool to be uh, of distance learning, because um, I, I think it, it leaves out so much of it. Not all of it, but it's well done. It can be okay. But if you if you think leaving the teacher out is a great way to lower the cost of education then you're not thinking about education anymore. You're thinking about economics. Um, the teacher, the skill of the teacher, the person of the teacher, you know, to see, for a young person to see someone in front of them who is engaged by these questions, who who loves literature, who loves the study of the past, who is, is uh, genuinely um, taken with those subjects, that, that's worth more than, than the best written books you can find. And so that's, you know, what you're doing with Kane Academy, and, and, uh, um, and I, want to, I want to learn more about it. This is not the last time we're going to talk. <laughs> <laughs> I want to learn more about what you're doing and, and see, if I can, see if I can learn from it, too. So thank you, thank you. Oh, well, you're most welcome, and now I'm speechless. Uh, but we at Kane Academy will do everything we can to live up to that accolade. Uh, thanks again, uh, Wilford McClay. We, we're so appreciative, and uh, we wish you all the best. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye now. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Sources. We have other great episodes coming soon, so keep that conversation going and bring your family and friends. Be sure to like and subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. The producer of this podcast is Helen DeSell Zwerneman. For all of us at Kane Academy, thanks for listening. 
to sources 